Let's, uh, let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the speaking God. And sometimes we come to things in the Bible that uh, seem hard to understand and uh, removed from reality. I pray this morning that we might see that what we've just read is very close to home. It is very true of our experience of life in this world. And what we've just read might point us to the Lord Jesus by the power of his spirit working within us for the sake of his name. Amen. Now, do you ever feel that uh, Sunday morning is totally removed from the rest of your life, from what you call maybe the real world? That in, you know, in here we sing of Jesus, we, uh, we talk to one another, we smile as Christians, we talk about love more than probably any time that blokes usually get the word love out during the week. We pray to the one who we claim runs the entire universe, and then we go out there. You know, and out there, God doesn't get a look in. The world is run by powerful people, wealthy people, people doing what they want, when they want, people making their own rules and happily ignoring the God that we're gathered here this morning to worship. And out there, God doesn't seem to exist. In fact, in our culture, increasingly, God's been banned. You're not allowed to mention him. To claim to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, one of God's people, that's an increasingly difficult, even a dangerous thing to do in some jobs. But doesn't the real world you experience day in, day out, sometimes feel a million miles from what we do in here on a Sunday morning? Now, Esther is real world history. It's not the sanitized version that you'll get in your kid's Bible, This would make a fantastic box set, the book of Esther. There's political intrigue, there's opulent wealth, there's sex and violence, there's rags to riches, there's rescue, and there's revenge in the book of Esther. It's far more like an episode of Game of Thrones than an account of godly wisdom. You see, Esther is a brutal book, an unkind book, at times a cruel book, as well as a beautiful book. And do you know the one thing that's never mentioned in the book of Esther? Religion. That there's nothing about religion in this book. I wonder if you noticed that in our reading. God doesn't get mentioned in the book of Esther. It's potentially the only book in the Bible, some discussion about Song of Songs, the only book of the Bible where God is never mentioned. And yet this is Christian scripture. God put this in his word to teach us, to encourage us, to rebuke us, to bring us to know the Lord Jesus. So uh, let's look at the apparently godless world of Esther. Uh, The year is 483 BC. Come and meet the most powerful man in the world in verse 1. This is what happened during the time of King Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. This is a, a vast empire. You can see a map behind me here. It stretches from India in the east right through to North Africa, to sort of Libya and Ethiopia. Xerxes literally ruled his world. And you couldn't escape his influence. You couldn't flee Xerxes' control. Everywhere you went was the Persian Empire. That's your experience if you're living in the time of Esther. You are under Persia and you can't get away from it. And in the middle is the capital, Susa, where Xerxes sits on his royal throne, probably in a citadel that was elevated 40 meters above the rest of the city. Xerxes is above his people, 
and he's above contradiction. You see, power is a, a very attractive thing, isn't it? I mean, we love, love the idea to be, to be able to command our own interests, to choose our own destinies. Oh, power is very attractive, especially when it's combined with wealth. Because Xerxes, he's decided to throw a party. Did you see that? In verse 3, all the people worth knowing are there. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles and the provinces were present. Other sources tell us this was probably a party to get them on side before he launched a disastrous military campaign attacking the Greek empire to the north. It appears that Xerxes' empire isn't quite the same size as his ego yet. He's got more to conquer. And so everyone who is anyone is there. And to impress his guests, verse 4, for a full 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. It takes him six months to show off. That's because there's so much to show off. I mean, the message is simple, isn't it? Come and look at me. Get a load of what I've got. It uh, would involve lazing by the pool during the morning when they finally got out of bed, enjoying the latest films in the private cinema in the afternoon, going riding around the fringes of the state in the evening before partying the night away. And boy, could Xerxes throw a party. I mean, at the end of all this showing off to the nobility, he gets everyone in Susa the highest to the lowest, to come to an almighty booze-up. The word in verse 5 for banquet actually suggests that the bar was much more important than the buffet when Xerxes had you round. Many of these people would have never seen the royal garden. It must have taken their breath away. The the gazebo was made with the the most ornate fabrics. The fittings were silver. The, The marble poles were a bit of a pig to get up. But anyway, the garden furniture... It was silver and gold. And whereas most people have patios made of concrete slabs, Xerxes' patio was made of mother of pole inlaid with precious jewels. It made the inside of the Trump Tower look cheap and nasty. Maybe that's true anyway. (laughs) And if, if the surroundings were extravagant, the refreshments, they were extraordinary. You got served in your own personalized gold goblet. No two were the same. And the wine, it it never ran out. Verse 8, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restriction. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. And soon around Susa, you hear happy voices being raised in the chorus of, For Xerxes is a jolly good fellow. For Xerxes is a jolly good fellow. For Xerxes is a jolly good fellow. And so say all of us. Wouldn't you like to have gone to that party? A culture where power is esteemed, where wealth is the marker of how great you are, where showing off your home is the way that you impress your friends, where too much wine is a good night out, a bit more drunk is a bit more happy. Does that world sound familiar to you? See, the first thing we're faced with in Esther is, is actually a wonderful world. I mean, the world here looks great. And doesn't it look great a lot of the time? Don't you, when you go to the pub in Claygate and you drive past those houses that are set a bit further back from the road than yours, don't you think, you know, I, I might be a little bit happier if I lived there? 
You know, we might laugh at the brash bragging of someone like Donald Trump. But, but doesn't a bit of you think, well, if I just had a few more pennies, if I didn't have to count them, life would be a bit easier? My wife, Boo, was going around a little at the beginning this week. She kept bumping into mums from CEC, from church here. They were all doing the same thing, trying to shop on less because that was all that was left in the bank account at the end of the month. There's a little competition going around to see if they can make it to the till. Now, let's not be pretend we, we wouldn't be impressed as we walked around Xerxes' palace. We wouldn't be, be a little jealous of him. That the, the values of the world around us don't actually appeal to us a bit. I mean, they seem so much more real than God, don't they? So much more tangible. We're often left thinking, I don't know, what is the point of this Christian thing? When so many of my non-Christian friends, they have more fun, they have more toys, they have more time, they just have more. Doesn't the world look wonderful a lot of the time? But but Xerxes, he's not finished showing off yet. Look down at verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of the king. We don't know why the beautiful Vashti is having her own party, but now the king has one more object. He wants to parade in front of his subjects. He's drunk with wine, and he's drunk with power. So he sends off his uh, seven closest servants. They've been castrated, so they don't want what he wants. And verse 11 to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. It's not Vashti's conversation that Xerxes longs for. It's not her intellect that he wants others to enjoy. He calls her in so that all the blokes with him can have a good ogle at her, stare at her like some sordid porn show. One commentator even suggests that it might be that she's asked to come in wearing only her royal crown. And whatever she has on, she's paraded as a sex object, a trophy. You've seen my garden, you've seen my wine, now here's my totty. Let's all have a look at her. Verse 12. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. You can imagine the scene, can't you? Seven muscular men creeping rather sheepishly back into the throne room, whispering to one another, you tell him, no, no, I'm not telling him. You tell him, I'm not telling him. And then the unlucky one who lost the game of hick, hack, hock, having to go up and and whisper to Xerxes, she's refused to come. See what happens when the, the most powerful man in the world, with the most impressive wealth in the world, who commands the greatest empire in the world, comes face to face with the will of a woman. (laughs) Queen Vashti refused to come. And Xerxes explodes. End of verse 12, the king became furious and burned with anger. Literally, he became exceedingly angry with a very burning anger. See, he might rule 127 provinces, but he can't command his wife. See, for all the the self-declared glory of Xerxes, this actually shows us another really important truth about the world. You see, the world might look wonderful, but the world is weak. It's a weak world. But because what Xerxes does next is meant to make us laugh at the stupidity of this man. He contrives to make a mountain out of a molehill and make himself look an idiot at the same time. Look at verse 13. 
Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of the law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. He's in a drunken rage. He calls together the cabinet, his privy council. These are the most important advisors in Persia with their big pompous Persian names. These are the ones who help devise his international political strategy and government policy. And he says to them, there must be some law that means that my wife has to come to my party. What, what do I do next? How do I get her here? You see, the one thing that mighty King Xerxes doesn't do anywhere in the book of Esther is make a decision. Not once. He can't. He has to ask everyone else. Now, you'd think these civil servants would tell him, well, just get the eunuchs to drag her in or just have her executed. We see by the end of the chapter, he's not afraid of impaling a few people. But no, because they're civil servants, they come up with a long and tortuous sounding solution. Sire, says Memucan, this is a disaster. I mean, don't take it personally. It's not you she's offended. It's all of us. In fact, it's everyone everywhere across the whole world. You know, what's more, once women have heard how she's behaved this evening, they'll all be at it. They'll all be ignoring their husbands. Even now, I suspect some of our wives are thinking, just wait till I get him home. I'll tell him what for. The very fabric of our society is under threat. The Persian way of life is going to be lost. Now, let me make it very clear. This is not biblical advice on marriage. This is, this is a million miles away from Say Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5, where he commands husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church, laying down his life for her. This, this is a very different place. No, no, this is just command and law and ridiculous solution to a trivial problem. Look at verse 19. Therefore, butter him up, if it pleases the king, even though you cannot make a decision... Let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of the king. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. You see, she's not, not called queen anymore. But her punishment is to get exactly what she wants. She doesn't want to go into Xerxes. So here's a great punishment. Let's command her not to go into Xerxes. And then just for good measure... Because Menuhkan is a bit worried about this incident spreading, you know, the news traveling across the empire. Remember, there's no internet. You had to send carrier pigeons or people on ponies. Just because he's a bit worried about people hearing about this, he decides, let's send a proclamation to every corner of the empire that will tell everyone exactly what Vashti's done. Because that'll clear it up. You can imagine a couple somewhere in a, in a hut in the foothills of Uzbekistan. They never get visitors. All they see is goats. Their life is, is goats. And there's a knock on the door. Hello? <laughs> Who is it? It's the Imperial Marriage Police. We've just come hot from Susa to check that your wife is not disobeying you in the way that Queen Vashti has disobeyed King Xerxes. Who? Not that, not that Xerxes sees this as a ridiculous idea. He passes an irreversible edict while drunk and angry. An edict that makes him look weak and ridiculous. Isn't that the way of the world we live in? Just a little closer look. And the more you see people are weak. That's why we have those 
internet websites and magazines that love celebrating the downfall of the lives of the people we've grown to admire. Oh, people might have all the, the toys we want, but human power just can't get its own way. It either just makes ridiculous laws that, that look silly, like uh, North Korea's Kim, Kim Jong-un passing a poster of the 15 haircuts that the young men of North Korea are allowed. I bet they're thinking, oh, fantastic. None of them are his haircut. Or it's like bragging and, and can't be seen to be serious, like Donald Trump saying, oh, I had the biggest inauguration ever, whereas pictures clearly showed it was much smaller than Obama's. See, people cannot live up to their own publicity. You see, we might wonder at the world, but in the end, it's weak. It's a, it's a sad joke. It's incapable of delivering what it, what it claims. We might even fear the world around us. It seems so powerful, but in the end, since King Xerxes sat on his throne in Susa, proud empire after proud empire has come and gone in history. You can name them if you want. Where is communism in Eastern Europe? Where is the Nazi thousand-year Third Reich? Where is the British Empire? Where is the Roman Empire? They, they come and go. But, but the God of the universe continues to gather his people in his love to himself. You see, if Esther 1 leaves us laughing at the empire of the world, it is ridiculous. Well, Esther 2 actually should leave us sickened by it. Because it shows us a wicked world. We've seen a bit of this already, haven't we, in the way that Xerxes treats Vashti. But the way they go about finding a replacement is really sordid. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. We don't know how long it took for him to calm down. Maybe he'd been off and he was beaten up by the Greeks for three years. And maybe he's just come back from one of those slappings he got. And he's come back into his palace and he's thinking, oh, I really fancy seeing my most beautiful... Oh, oh no, I, I banished her. Anyway, we don't know how long it took, but Xerxes again needs someone else to solve his problem. So in verse 2, then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring these beautiful young women to be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the young women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This isn't a job you apply for. This isn't a contest you enter. This is human trafficking. This is people sent out to round up all the young, beautiful virgins they can get their hands on. It's desperately sad. It's sort of like Love Island on speed. Hundreds of blokes from all over the empire with one bloke who is the sole judge and jury. And the way he judges them? is by sleeping with them. End of verse 4. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. You bet it did. I was uh, reading the Metro on Friday uh, on, the, uh, on the underground, and most of the front-page article was all about being groped. Apparently, it's standard for young women going out in 21st century London to be groped. You see, time has passed, but the human heart hasn't changed. 
in a, in a so-called civilized country, in a country that champions women's rights, it has to have a campaign to tell young girls, you don't actually have to put up with drunken men grabbing your bum and boobs when you're out for the night. But the women of the Persian Empire, they weren't so lucky. And then suddenly, in the middle of Esther 2, out of the blue, we read this in verse 5. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who'd been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Literally, it starts, there was a man, a Jew, in the citadel of Susa. See, amongst all this wickedness, we suddenly see, here are the people of God. You see, Mordecai, he's got a Persian name, but he's got a Jewish history. And the people named in his family line are supposed to indicate to us, this is a guy descended from King Saul, one of the ancient kings of Israel. Mordecai is here described as in exile. His family had been taken from their home in Jerusalem by when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, besieged the city. It was God's punishment against his Old Testament people, the Jews. He took them to Babylon for 70 years in exile. Now, now the first wave of the Jews had been allowed to go back to Jerusalem. That had happened under Xerxes' grandfather, King Cyrus the Great. We're not told why Mordecai's family didn't go. We're not told what he's doing here in the capital, just that he's here. And we're told he's here with a a young girl he's adopted. Verse 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he'd brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. Now, a beautiful body is a dangerous thing to have when the scouts are out for the royal harem. Verse 8. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel in Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. There's no, there's no choice here. Refusal would have been impossible. Yes, it is true. God's people shouldn't marry, according to God's law, with the pagans around them. Yes, as one of God's people, I think that harem member, concubine, royal sex object is a less than desirable career. But we don't know whether Esther thought that. We don't even know if she's bothered by that. Because this is God's people living in the reality of a wicked world. This happened. It wasn't pretty, and it wasn't right. But it happened. Isn't that what your life's like? Things just aren't quite ideal in your life? Isn't your life littered with things that aren't pretty, and actually aren't right, but they just happened? That's Esther's life. And she's a canny girl, Esther. She plays her cards right with Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the royal spa. So she's bumped up to the top of the queue when it comes to milk baths and health food diet. And with her gold gym membership come the seven best personal trainers in Susa. See, she's in pole position to win Xerxes with her sexual prowess. And then verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Well, she does what her cousin says. Should she have said she was a Jew? Should should she and Mordecai have trusted the Lord here and owned up to him being their God, 
maybe some of the mess of the rest of the book wouldn't have happened. Certainly, throughout the Bible, God's people are commanded to be unashamed of following him. Should she have said it? Well, there's no comment here. What Esther's silence does tell us is she's afraid. Mordecai's afraid. They live in a world where owning up to following the God of the Bible is frightening. You can see Mordecai's concern by the way he paces up and down in the, the courtyard outside the palace, hoping to hear some news about his cousin. How's she doing? Well, it appears to be going rather well. You see, if popularity is the name of the game, Esther's surging ahead. The problem is, that's not the real game. The real game is, how do you fare in a one-night stand with a power-crazed drunken emperor? Verse 14. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. See how the contest works? You go from the harem of the virgins into the king, and a few hours later, you don't go back to the harem of the virgins. You go to the harem of the concubines. And there you stay until Xerxes fancies another go with, um, what, was, what was her name? You know, the, the blonde. What was her name, the blonde one? Well, Esther's turn comes. And we're reminded in verse 15 that this is uh, one of God's people. This is an, an orphan taken into the king. She wisely asks the guy who knows the king best, Haggai, what she should take with her. And she goes in. We're told when. It's four years after Xerxes has banished Vashti. And we read in verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other girls. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. As another jolly booze up. It's a public holiday, for Xerxes is a jolly good fellow. Lucky Esther. See, we're not supposed to see Esther as an example to follow. Maybe, maybe you've got a kid's Bible at home that does that, that makes her into a heroine. It probably skirts over the fact that... What happened was sordid. No, no, she's not an example to follow unless you're going to go home and tell your daughters, yeah, use your body to gain influence and safety in the world. That's it, have sex with blokes if that gets you a safe standing in a difficult world. Because that's what Esther does. Sadly, that's what many young women do, isn't it? See, this is the nature of the wicked world that rejects God. It's a world of powerful people who use others of dictators who will castrate men and then use women for sexual gratification, just disposing of them the following morning. It's a world where girls are so afraid of their status, so wanting to be secure in a future, that they literally will volunteer their bodies as a bargaining chip. This is the world we live in. Let's not pretend our world today is any less wicked. Oh, oh the brutality may have been toned down, but the attitudes haven't. I mean, that's what we have to say, don't we, in, in a week when the founder of Playboy, Hugh Hefner, died. In a week when the very unfortunately named American politician, Anthony Weiner, was jailed for sexting underage girls. In a week, probably, sadly, when some of our teenagers online will have been watching things and sending things that we would be horrified if we knew about. 
You see, in our culture, we think that they're safer because they don't go out and snog behind the bus stop anymore. They stay at home. But violent pornography amongst uh, young teenagers has exploded over the last five years. Now, this is our world. So where is God in all this? I mean, what can we learn? I mean, if Esther's not an example... If the Lord doesn't intervene to rescue her from being a sex slave, if Mordecai appears to have chosen to stay in Paganville rather than return to the promised land, well, what can we learn? And uh, well, what can we learn about who God is? Well, I just want to end with two lessons. Two lessons about our God that are woven silently into the book of Esther and have their beginning in the first two chapters. Here's the first one. Our God is the God of providential coincidences. In other words, he overrules every aspect of our lives. Look at the last few verses with me. Look at verse 21. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. The king's gate wasn't just the way into the city. It was where the business of government was done. Perhaps Mordecai's risen to a low level in the civil service. And whilst in the coffee lounge, having his flat white, he overhears a discussion in the booth next to him. Uh, Verse 22, but Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. It's the final coincidence in the chapter. Esther just happened to be beautiful and athletic. Esther just happened to be spotted by the sex scouts. Esther Esther just happened to be a Jew. Mordecai just happened to be at the gate. Mordecai just happened to overhear the plot. Mordecai just happened to have that recorded in the book that King Xerxes had. Now, Now, if this were a crime thriller, we'd be knowing that the the author was, was putting in the pieces that, that were going to be vital later in the plot. We'd know that, wouldn't we? But this isn't a crime thriller. This is the Lord at work keeping his promises to his people. His promise to love them, to protect them, to be with them. In a world that looks wonderful, but is weak and wicked. In a world that doesn't want to talk about God, won't talk about God, gets angry with you if you talk about God, the Lord is at work. In fact, the fact that God is silent, I think in one way goes to emphasize that he is behind every single detail in the book of Esther. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 famously says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who he's been called according to his purpose. Now, I expect that at the end of chapter 2, Mordecai and Esther would have struggled to see how that was true for them. But it was. And it's also true for us. Because the same God is ordering every detail of our lives to keep us following the Lord Jesus Christ, to make us a bit more like the Lord Jesus Christ. He directs the courses of empires, the Bible tells us. He oversees the life of sparrows. There is no power, there is nothing that you are afraid of that is so great that it is beyond him. 
There is no detail so small it escapes him. There is nothing so trivial in your life that he is not interested and involved in it. Oh, most of the time we'll not be conscious he's at work. Sometimes we can, we can see in the recent past how he's been at work, moving in our lives, but a lot of the time we can't. But he is at work, and he's always for us. And that's fantastic news, because here's the, the second thing I think we see. It's the God of compromised people. The God of compromised people. Over the years, people have made loads of attempts to tidy up the lives of Esther and Mordecai, to, to explain away their compromise and fear, but you can't. All the questions you've got about them are because they are questionable people. Their lives are compromised, but they still are loved by the living God. Because actually people are never the stars of the Bible. God is. And you see, our God is the God of grace who so orders history to save people, not because of who they are, but despite who they are. Maybe you've come this morning feeling that your life is so compromised that you, you just can't call yourself a Christian anymore or you couldn't start to follow Jesus because you're not good enough. Well, Esther 1 and 2 shows us that God has a people and they are a very mixed bunch. In fact, one of the marks of being one of God's people, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, is acknowledging that daily you do not live up to the standards he has set, and daily you require him to give his son, the Lord Jesus, to give him in love for you so that you can be accepted by him and welcomed into his people. Because we've got a king, but he's not like Xerxes. We've got a king who demonstrated his splendor and glory and majesty by leaving the beauty of his palace and in humility coming to dwell among us. And we've got a king who, during his life, demonstrated he ruled over all of creation. He strode the earth, calming storms and raising the dead, but he showed his true power not by bragging about it, but by standing silently as men lied and falsely accused him and condemned him. And we have a king who doesn't impale, impale his rebellious subjects on poles in a fit of anger. No, rather, we have a king who stretched wide his arms in love, who was nailed to a pole, and there bore his own right anger at the way we have treated him and one another. We have a king who increased his empire through his death and resurrection, a king who rescues us out of our wicked world, a king who welcomes us to enjoy life now and forever in his kingdom of love. We've got a king called Jesus. He is the king of heaven, our king.